Spoke Media. Aaliyah, I'm going to ask you a potentially embarrassing question. Okay. Uh, embarrassing for me, that is. Okay. I'm ready. Do you know what an unlisted number is? Uh, okay, I know that an unlisted number is like a result of someone who made a conscious choice not to list their number or identity publicly. In the phone book. You know what phone books are, right? Yes, Bob, I know what phone books are. I grew up in the 90s. We had phone books. Sorry, sorry. That's not my point. But my point is, you paid the phone company to keep your number unlisted. You paid them for privacy. So if you were a person worried about creeps or you had a nasty neighbor or you just wanted to be left alone, well, there was a monthly fee for that. That's insane. And a monthly fee to be left alone... That kind of reminds me of Jessica Tunin. Jessica Tunin, yes, who we met in episode one. She has spent a decade trying to keep her personal information off the internet to avoid contact with an ex, trying to essentially get unlisted by the internet. Think of it as a privacy tax, and her privacy tax is punishing. She once gave me a spreadsheet to describe it all. You know, $100 for a VPN, $30 to apply for the local government to not post her name. And um, having a home and purchasing it on your own. Also, the um, tax office will post your home address online. And in finding out about all these different things, you can protect yourself by paying a fee. So paying a fee with having a website, which I do have. So paying for your hosting company. Um, If you want a VPN to feel more protected, there's a cost to that. Having a PO box to not have your home address posted. So I also have um, three registered trademarks at the USPTO office. So having that PO box listed instead of a home address or paying a registered agent, um, which is an annual fee of about $100 a year. Having the PO box, I think, is like a $300 charge a year. So she's like paying for protection. Do you know what we call paying for protection? Extortion. I'm Aaliyah Tavakolian. And I'm Bob Sullivan. And this is No Place to Hide, a So Bob miniseries about the state of privacy, brought to you by Intel. Over the past two episodes, we've learned that privacy is a serious issue, so serious it can mean life or death to some people. We've learned that corporations in Congress have pretty much sat back and done next to nothing to address privacy. And today, we're going to talk about what can be done now that we're here. As we learned in episode one, Jessica and other people like her are at war. And in episode two, we learned that America is at war. But where are the bullets? Where is the damage? Well, we know that this war has sown a lot of seeds of distrust in our democracy, in democracy around the world. But that might be nothing compared to what's coming. So the future of AI and privacy is, to me, very, very dark. Because the question is, who are you? Are you the sum of your thoughts or the sum of your decisions or the sum of your emotions? What if you will discover that all of those things can be easily changed through technology? 
This is Manny Barzilay. We met him in episode one. Again and again, we witnessed cases where companies and other entities proved that by using technologies together with sophisticated enough algorithms, you can change the way people think, you can change the way people feel, and you can change the way people view the world. And now you have a system that is able to learn by itself. You give it data and you connect it to platforms, again, like Facebook, Google, and others, that allow you allow a third party like the system to show us information and check what does this information make us do? What kind of decision we're making when viewing this information? And when you connect those new type of algorithms, what you get is a system that will be able to develop algorithms that will allow us to change the way you think and the way you feel with a very high level of accuracy. Change the way you think and the way you feel with a high level of accuracy. My goodness. This is what I would call a no place to hide moment. It's just so scary to think about. I'm not sure that was as scary as the Gorgon stare thing, though. Oh, God, the Gorgon stare. That was like the ultimate no place to hide moment. So so there's, um, there's a technology called Gorgon stare, which is an aerial-based camera system. It's typically used on blimps which can stay up in the air for a really long time. This is John Verdi. He's vice president of policy at the Future of Privacy Forum. And the stuff he's about to talk about with the Gorgon stare sounds like something out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's insane. Um, And this technology was developed for use in theaters of war. It was developed, I believe, originally um, for use in Iraq. And... The multiple cameras that are attached to this data platform that is attached to a blimp are used to algorithmically analyze pedestrians, cars, cyclists, scooters, um, any vehicles or individuals who are moving around on the ground. It collects and retains that information pretty much indefinitely. And it can be used to more or less track individuals or individual vehicles consistently over time. And in a war atmosphere, one can imagine the useful uh, reasons for doing this, right? You would want to track enemy troop movements. You would want to identify suicide bombers. um, You would want to try to do all sorts of things um, that would be helpful when you're in a wartime environment. I think the thing that's really troubling about this technology is that some police departments in the United States have either brought it back home for use in American cities and communities, or they are proposing that they do so. And it's this kind of pervasive, precise, comprehensive surveillance of everybody's movements that I think should raise real alarm bells for individuals, particularly if they're in a community where the law enforcement agencies are are proposing to use this technology. Bob, this was supposed to be a podcast about privacy, and now it's kind of about Big Brother? It's about Big Brother. It's about governments. It's about corporations. It's about hacking your free will. It's a strange question to ask at this point, but what is privacy anyway? And this is sort of where we began. I think the word privacy is so inadequate to describe all the things that we're talking about. For some people, privacy just means the ability to be left alone. That was 2018 Bob in Laramie, Wyoming. 
privacy, for some people, like Jessica Tunin, is really about safety. It's about freedom from being worried about being hurt by someone. For Sinzi Gutu, it's about free will. For some people, privacy is about the ability to just think for yourself or the ability to be creative or just the freedom from being watched. Privacy is really about protecting minorities. For other people, privacy is a statute of limitations on mistakes. Privacy is about freedom from Big Brother. And privacy is fundamental to the whole creation of the United States. It was the cause of the American Revolution. One of the big reasons the colonies revolted was because British soldiers were marching into people's homes without any paperwork. So privacy is this enormous topic. It's really about the essence of who you are. Speaking of the essence of who you are, let's check in on our data broker experiment. We're about to reveal to Keith Allen Reynolds all the dirt we dug up on him. It's not quite a Gorgon stare, but it's close. Hey everyone, Kelly the producer, back once again to bring you the culmination of our data broker experiment. So, when we last left Carter and Jake, they'd given us some preliminary findings on our founder and president and volunteer, Keith Allen Reynolds. And now that the databases have been checked, the reports have been read, and the spreadsheets have been composed, there's only one thing left for us to do. See how accurate and creepy this all is by getting Carter and Jake on the phone with Keith himself. Hi, guys. You know everything about me. This is weird. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to meet you. So with all the introductions out of the way, it was time for Carter and Jake to start spilling the tea on everything they found on Keith. They started by verifying the basics. I do have one question to start with. Your middle name is Alan, correct? Yes, yes, my middle name is Alan. Yes, I knew it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So, um, for some more of the basic biographical information, is your birthday December 11th, 1983? Yes, yes it is. (laughs) All right, glad we were right about that. And was that in Maine? Yes. In Winslow, Maine? (laughs) Uh. So I grew up in a town called Winslow that is right next door to Waterville, and Waterville is technically where the hospital is that I was born. Um, but I feel like mm. you guys, the, you, you get points for that one. That's a win. So in terms of the growing up in, in Winslow, Maine, you grew up on Reynolds Road? <laughs> is that named after your family? <laughs> uh, yes, I did. Uh, we moved to Reynolds Road when I was like three years old. And the story goes, and I have no idea if this is true or not, but so my dad's family um, owned a farm in Winslow. And way, way back, like 100 years ago, the Reynolds family owned all of Winslow. It was just like big farmland. But I can say definitively that um, you guys probably already know that my father's name was Tim. And my well, tell me what my mother's name was before I move on with this part of the story. Uh, Nancy Yes. Is our guest. Yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> Nancy is my mother. Do you know my, my dad's middle name? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's fucking weird. All right. Uh, so yes. <laughs> but the weirdness didn't end there. After confirming a couple more of Keith's inner circle, i.e. his brother and his wife, Carter and Jake moved on to Keith's address. All right. So now for your address, we found two possible. So... And he may have just moved, which would explain. Yes. So did you just move to 2 Street in Dallas? I did, yes, in March. From 30 also in Dallas? No, missed a couple of dresses in there. Oh. Yeah, there, there was uh, 30 is actually my in-law's place. Ah. And that was what we used as our mailing address when we first moved here from New York to Dallas. So we've never actually lived there. That would make sense. I think we... 
it showed up quite a bit for us because it was your official address for like car registration, spoke media registration, mm-hmm. um, other, other incorporation. Yes, indeed. Not only could Carter and Jake tell Keith his own home address, they could also tell him all about his past, including some of his older companies. Well, so for Two Cent Bridge in particular, there's extra information on that at uh, themrreynolds.com. Themrreynolds.com. <laughs> yes, yes, my old... From your producer days. Yes, indeed. I was actually just telling this story earlier today when I first started, um, when I first started interning at my first recording studio. Uh, bonus points, can you guys tell me what my first recording studio I interned at was? Oh, wait, I have that somewhere. It was... uh, Quad Studio? Yes. Oh, my God. They know everything, guys. They know everything. Yeah, and that is all. That is on the website, and the people that you worked with at Brought to Life Music. Wait, is that website is still a, active? You pulled up a website? I feel like I haven't... Oh, yeah, that active. website is active. Oh, God, we got to oh, shut yeah. that shit down. In a conversation full of reveals, clearly MrReynolds.com was the most shocking one yet. But speaking of shocking, I was ready to get into the real juicy stuff. So next I asked Carter and Jake if they found any criminal records on Keith. And this is where the data report started to get a bit unreliable. We weren't sure this was you, but I did find something that said it was from Galveston, Texas in 2016, a misdemeanor for operating an all-terrain vehicle on a public uh, street road or highway. <laughs> No, I've never been to Galveston, Texas. I've never, <laughs> okay. I don't think I've ever driven an ATV. So there's one, at least one thing that looks like it's linked to this Keith that is false then, fully. Yes. So then in that case, we did not find any, uh, we didn't no. find any criminal records that matched. I will say, this was funny. There's this one report called InfoTracer that is not the most reliable because it essentially we found out just aggregates anyone named Keith Reynolds maybe ever because it had two different arrests and like uh, 97 different criminal slash traffic violations. But, you know, you scroll down and it's just clearly people in West Virginia, people that aren't you. People but... with mugshots that are definitely not you. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it aggregates it all, you said? This is the cheapest Report two, uh, I will say. Some of them seem to go for uh, quantity over quality of uh, information. Bummer. I mean, if you're an innocent person who happens to share a name with someone whose record isn't so spotless. And remember that bankruptcy that was mentioned in episode two? Yeah, that was false as well. Keith didn't go bankrupt. But we found out it's not just you who can get caught up in these data reports. It's the people around you, like, say, your younger brother or your wife. Well, we we did stay away from reports on anyone else. It tried to tempt us. It was like for only two dollars more, get reports <laughs> on uh, on Craig and Kristen. Wow! So this is like this is like an upsell for these companies. They're like curious about this guy. Go and check out these other people in his life. That's creepy. That might be the creepiest thing I've heard so far. It is creepy, and as amusing as our data broker experiment on Keith has been so far, I can't help but think back to Amy Boyer. Keith consented to having his information dug up. Amy had no say. She lost her life because a data broker sold her information to a stalker. They told him where she worked. That was 20 years ago, but it feels like it could just as easily happen today. Um, How many hours did you guys roughly spend on this project? I would say combined we ended up spending 15-ish. Wow. In a day of work from two people, 
You can learn my entire life history from websites. Yeah. A day of work and 150 bucks, two humans, and my stuff is just out there. And honestly, the 150 bucks was overkill. We could have probably found almost just as much of this with, I don't know, 60 bucks. God. Especially if we knew which places to go to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that's this is just all terrifying. It's just all terrifying. I'm, uh, I'm over the joy of it now. Yeah, I kind of brought the mood down. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Welcome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Carter and Jake for being our researchers in this experiment. And thanks so much to Keith for being our test subject. We really appreciate it. But the Data Broker Project isn't over yet. Now that we know all the dirt that these data brokers dug up on Keith, we want to see if Carter and Jake can get it all scrubbed from the internet. It won't be easy, but I think they're up for the challenge. That's in the next installment of No Place to Hide. Bob, as we've been working on this, I've of course been thinking a lot about how I can protect my own privacy, and I think that maybe I've found it. Or Joel Stein found it. Joel is a Bloomberg reporter who set out to confuse any and everything meant to track you. And in order to do that, he actually fought gadgets with gadgets. He bought a shirt covered in license plates to confuse license plate readers. He hired someone to erase all of his web and social media history. He even bought a mask to wear on his face everywhere to foil facial recognition systems. It's bananas. (laughs) Those are things you can do. I bet that mask would get hot, though. (laughs) Yeah, this guy was serious. Okay, well, fine, no mask. But what are some more practical things that I could do? Okay, here's a few. Stop giving your phone number out at stores, or at least use a fake one, a disposable one. You you can get those for free from Google. Yeah, Bob, you actually taught me to do this, and now whenever I'm at a store making a purchase and someone asks me for my phone number, I just sort of say, do I really have to give that to you? And they say, no, and they're sort of taken aback by it, and then we just move on. And you've exercised your one democratic right to express your opinion about privacy. Yes, I feel so empowered when I do that. I think that's great. And you know what? If enough people do that, that cashier is going to go to her boss and say, I'm annoyed about asking this question and might be enough to create change. So that's one thing. Other things you could do, come up with a burner email address when you sign up for things. Limit the number of places that you register, like websites. Use a password manager, or at least use very good passwords and don't ever reuse them. Patronize sites that use tokens instead of store your credit cards. Wait, what's a token? It's just a representation of your credit card number, so they don't store your number, they store this representation instead. And so that's another way to keep your banking accounts safe. And sites are starting to use those, notice which ones are, and patronize them instead. That's a good thing to do. Okay, got it. So those things can work, but in truth, they just kind of eat around the edges of the problem. It's society. It's all of us. Tech companies, governments, consumers. We all have to come up with the answer. And yes, people are trying. For example, the state of Vermont just passed a law requiring data brokers there to register and essentially get a license from the state. That should help clean up the industry a little. And as you probably have heard, after Facebook and Equifax and all those other hacks, there is finally a lot of push in Washington, D.C. to create a federal law dealing with some of these issues. But it's an uphill battle. Becky Richards is the chief privacy officer at the NSA, which to me sounds like the hardest job you could have in privacy. When companies and organizations are starting to 
fill a space that has historically been in that public sphere, I think that's a place where we really haven't figured out how do we do this in a democratic process? Do we want these companies setting up what looks and feels a lot like a judge and a jury, but they get to choose who it is? Or do we want to go back and think about, no, actually, this really should go back into to that governmental space? You know, we're a government by the people, of the people, for the people, and we want to make sure it's representative of those people. The challenge begins because companies like Facebook have become so large and so powerful that they're functioning like governments now. People can file a Freedom of Information Act request with the NSA, but they can't do that with Facebook. Talk like that has a lot of people calling for big tech companies to be broken up, that they're too powerful. That would be a long-term fight, though. Yeah, I was covering Microsoft in Seattle during the last antitrust trial. That got ugly, and it did take years. But Christine Varney, the former FTC commissioner turned antitrust lawyer from episode two, thinks that there are things Congress could do to act now. They could pass a very straightforward law that says you cannot collect any data other than the data provided for the purpose which uh, is clearly intended, it's clearly intended use. So if I'm buying something on Amazon, you can't use that data for anything other than to fulfill my order. If I'm using Google email, you can't use my email address or anything in my email uh, for anything other than delivering me email. I mean, just to re- I don't think we need to overcomplicate this. I think you pass a very straightforward law. That sounds pretty simple. Data can only be used for the reason it's collected. I mean, I use an easy pass gadget to pay a toll. The highway gets to take my money, and that's it. They can't sell or store my location information. I like this idea too, but not everybody does. Imagine your child goes missing, and toll booth data could help find him. Now, don't you want that data to be used for additional purposes? Or what about research? What if toll booth data could help smart cities make a plan that would cut traffic and emissions? What I'm getting at is, there would have to be exceptions. Yeah, I hear that. You're right. Okay, so I've heard that a federal law has actually been put on the table, and that tech companies are the ones backing it. Yeah, the Business Roundtable. It's a group that includes Amazon, Dell, IBM, a lot of heavy hitters. They sent a letter to Senator Mitch McConnell saying they support, quote, a comprehensive federal consumer data privacy law to strengthen consumer trust and establish a stable policy environment in which new services and technologies can flourish. We should note here that our sponsor, Intel, did not sign that letter. It's a good thing that they are calling attention to the need for better rules, but consumer advocates say this could also be a bit of a Trojan horse. And the first thing the companies want is a privacy law, quote-unquote privacy law, that says everything you companies are doing, keep doing it. Don't ever change. This is consumer advocate Edmir Zwinski again. They want to legalize everything they're doing without giving consumers any new rights. And those rights that we want, uh, we want the right to sue companies that harm our privacy. That's off the table for the companies. But the most important thing is somebody that's been doing this work at both the state and the national level. All the good ideas I've ever seen come from the states. That's why industry wants to preempt the right of state governments to pass stronger laws. Because all the good ideas come from state governments. Industry doesn't want any new good ideas. They want to perpetuate their right to run roughshod over Americans, over our privacy, uh, disrespect everything we do. And so preemption uh, and the right to sue companies If the industry has its way, Congress is going to pass a law that says, you can keep doing everything you're doing. Consumers don't have any right to sue you. So the federal law Ed is worried about 
would actually essentially invalidate that Vermont law I mentioned earlier that forces data brokers to register. So Ed really wants this federal law to fail. The best opportunity I see is that it collapses of its own weight and we still have the states leading the way. The states are where the good ideas come from. Congress never acts to protect consumers unless there was a disaster or unless the states show the way. 2008, the entire financial world collapsed, and it was because of overreaching by Wall Street, uh, who thought they were the masters of the universe, etc., etc. It took us years to climb out of the mess that the banks brought on us. So Ed is comparing Cambridge Analytica in the privacy world to the collapse of the housing bubble in the financial world. The collapse of the housing bubble led to the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, And we might need something as bad as that in the privacy world to create a federal agency with real teeth to actually enforce privacy laws. Bob, you know what I'm going to ask, don't you? I do know what you're going to ask. So what's our reasonable hope? I'm glad you asked that. I'm not surprised, but glad. Well, I actually thought Trevor Hughes from the International Association of Privacy Professionals had some hopeful things to say. He kind of said privacy is just going through a phase. Look at some of the media and magazine covers today. They often say things like, your privacy is gone, you should get over it, or privacy is dead. Not so. Absolutely not so. My argument would be that privacy is doing what privacy has always done, and that is change its form and shape, adjust to new technological mediation that has occurred, and adapt so as to protect this fundamental human truth on a going forward basis. What that also means, though, is that our laws and policies that we create to manage privacy must never be static. So we shouldn't hope for the single perfect solution to managing privacy. And we shouldn't ever think that if we pass a law, it's one and done. That is never going to be the case. Year by year, decade by decade, generation by generation, we are going to have to go back and revisit these things to make sure that they're keeping up with what society expects in the current technological context and environment in which we find ourselves in to protect privacy. Remember Cindy Gutu from Canada? She's in an interesting spot because Canadian privacy rules are kind of in between European privacy law and U.S. laws. Her perspective is important. She thinks people have a bad habit of seeing this issue in black and white. Innovation versus privacy. Consumers versus corporations. George Jetson gadgets versus George Orwell surveillance. But it doesn't have to be that way. Put simply, privacy means don't share. You know, this is kind of the elementary understanding of privacy. Don't share, keep it all to yourself, you know, being left alone. And so the conflict is if, you, if you're trying to be left alone, how can you engage in society? And how can you be a meaningful member of society? How can we make use of your data, what you're doing, of what you're thinking, and give you better health care, give you important products, increase accessibility for you? So I think that's how it's traditionally thought. But I think now that view has changed and... You know, many companies say we care about privacy, but it goes back to what you're saying. What do they mean by that? Facebook was in court in the States recently, and their lawyer made an argument that when people sign up for Facebook and they post something, even if it's to a small group of friends, they're publishing. That is public. 
And intuitively, the judge said, how can you have that? It's not so black and white. Like, they're sharing it with a select group of people. They're not sharing it with the world. And the lawyer, and I'm not a U.S. lawyer, so I don't know if what they're saying is really correct, but they said, this is, a, this is privacy. If you're publishing something, if something meets the definition of publishing, it's out there. And this is what privacy is. It's, it's, it is all or nothing. You either keep it or you don't, which is a really... I think it's wrong, but also archaic way of thinking about what privacy is. It's nuanced. You can certainly have privacy in public. You can have privacy in public. That's not what I expected anyone to say during this podcast, Bob. Privacy in public, right? That sounds like a contradiction, but it's, it's a paradox. It, it doesn't seem to make sense on the surface, but it reveals this deeper truth. It's like when I share a secret with someone, I don't mean to share it with everyone. Privacy is not hiding in a corner by yourself. Privacy is controlling the flow of information that you share. It means my best friend knows this and nobody else knows about it. It means when I tell somebody something, it goes where I intend and never goes where I don't intend. This is a very nuanced thing, and it's going to be very hard to get it right in a federal law, in a privacy policy, but this is what we have to strive for. And in fact, this is the kind of compromise that we've been striving for for a very long time. And one of the things that I harken back to is that we are 250 years into the Industrial Revolution, and as societies around the world, we are still grappling with the consequences of the Industrial Revolution. That's Trevor Hughes again. Let's put an easy one on the table. The environmental movement exists because of the effluent of the Industrial Revolution. So in many ways, we are dealing with the societal and environmental consequences of the Industrial Revolution through our environmental efforts. And if we Mm. think of the rise of environmentalism, since, say, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring and other early environmentalists emerged in the U.S. and elsewhere, um, there are a vast and complex array of solution sets that have emerged. Technologies laws and standards, broad consumer and citizen awareness and understanding. If there is a blue plastic bin in your office or in a place that you are visiting a coffee shop or something, we have now been normed into understanding that that's usually the recycle bin. We are on the same kind of education and normalization curve, normative curve, in the digital economy. So if we look back to the Industrial Revolution and think of how it revolutionized not just the way goods and materials were manufactured, but also how it revolutionized society, it's not just environmentalism, it's public school education, a standard work week, the idea of holidays, the idea of women's suffrage emerged largely out of the Industrial Revolution, the idea of a childhood and child labor laws emerged out of the Industrial Revolution. Society was forever changed by the Industrial Revolution. It has taken us 250 years and we still have not fully resolved all of the societal issues that that revolution created for us. We are probably 25 years, um, you could argue, into the digital revolution, and we have just begun to tackle some of the big societal changes. If you look at it that way, we're just at the beginning of this discussion. Like, if this were the Industrial Revolution, we would be in the late 1700s in Great Britain. Yes, Aaliyah, and you would be William Wordsworth writing about alienation from nature. Oh, if only. (laughs) Yeah, and the French Revolution would be hanging in the air, or I shouldn't have used that word. Uh, Napoleon would still be ahead of us. I better stop this, but you get the idea. (laughs) Yes, 
I do. I do. And I appreciate it. I guess every age is arrogant about its own time, right? Thinking it's really important compared to the past or the future. So perspective is good. Yeah, I think it's really important to recognize that we're only at the beginning of what will probably be a century, centuries long conversation. But on the other hand, I don't think we can afford to slow walk any of this. The crisis is here now. There is a near and present danger. We'd better do something soon. There is a vast, dangerous ecosystem of some four to 6,000 companies, depending on how you count, that fit this notion of what we call data brokerage that are existing only to buy and sell data about people. And they create a commodity about each and every one of us that makes every bit of information about us something that can be bought and sold. It puts a price tag on all of our personal information that takes that information and packages it uh, in all sorts of ways to be sold uh, instantaneously to anyone who wants to buy it. And it facilitates all sorts of ongoing privacy um, interventions in our life and, frankly, privacy invasions in our life, some of which are particularly damaging. If Congress were to stop and regulate data brokerage, we would do enormous good for the American public in advancing their privacy. And I think this is a dangerous moment. I think that Congress should step into the breach and should do something not only about data brokerage, but about the scoring. We're at a dangerous moment. Yeah, I really agree with what Tim Sparapani said there. Artificial intelligence is about to get so good at predicting who might attend a protest rally that it will allow government to arrest people before the rally even happens. Algorithm bias is here dictating where people can live and go to school. Manipulation on a grand scale, on a nationwide scale, is here. Cinzi even talks about a threat to free will. If we don't act, people in the future, and not people next century, people next decade, are going to look very poorly on us. We'll explore more about what AI, robots, and the Internet of Things might mean for privacy in the next installation of this miniseries. But as we wrap up this season... Bob, what's your reasonable hope? I do have a reasonable hope, and it also comes from history. Good. My favorite author is Thomas Cahill, who has this wonderful series of books called The Hinges of History. He picked various critical points in humanity, the European Renaissance, the rise of Greek culture, the gift of the Jews, and most important, how ordinary people made critical decisions at crucial times and in many cases saved societies from self-destruction. My favorite, of course, is the book called How the Irish Saved Civilization, which is about an anonymous band of monks in Western Ireland who fastidiously and painstakingly copied and saved Greek literature from destruction, while the rest of Europe and European libraries were being burned. I like to think Cahill, or somebody like him, will one day write another Hinges of History volume about our time. I think there won't be one hero who sets us right in this tech mess we're in right now. There's going to be many. There's going to be a bunch of anonymous people, just like those monks in Western Ireland, who work for years decades tirelessly trying to pull us out of this mess and set technology right so our future can have all of these wonderful things that we have the potential to see right now, but the tech won't rule us and we won't lose our humanity and our privacy in the meantime. And for that to happen, well, we all have to do our part. That begins by caring. This was the final episode of this arc of No Place to Hide. But don't worry, we aren't done yet. In the next installation, we tackle what will happen to the future of privacy. Stay tuned for that in 2020. While you're waiting, why don't you head on over to Apple Podcasts and review our show? Drop us some stars if you're really digging it. It helps people find the show. No Place to Hide is a Spoke Media production brought to you by Intel. 
It's hosted by me, Aaliyah Tavakolian, and Bob Sullivan. It's produced by Kelly Kolf with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and our intern, Kendall Lake. Our story editor is Carson McCain. Today's episode was mixed by Alexander Mark. Our head of post-production is Will Short, who also composed our opening and closing themes. The songs you hear in this episode come from Firstcom. Our executive producer is Keith Allen Reynolds, the one, but not the only. Special thanks to the folks you heard today, Jessica Tunin, Manny Barzilai, John Verdi, Christine Varney, Becky Richards, Ed Mirzwinski, Trevor Hughes, Cinziana Gutu, and Tim Sparapani. And lastly, thanks to Toriano for recording us in DC and watching dog videos with us on our lunch break. Thanks for listening.